I joined the union full time and rose to become the general secretary of of the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which was probably the largest uh, trade union movement in in South Africa's history, and became a backbone of the struggle against apartheid. And that's where I connected to, in fact, many trade union leaders across Australia and New Zealand and the world and built real solidarity, you know, not the type of solidarity decided by log frames like big philanthropy does, but solidarity determined by people to people understanding that our struggle is the same to get to the humanity we want to be. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. For this episode, we're stepping away from our usual format and we're splitting the conversation into two parts. This first part features Jay talking about what it was like as a young person growing up under the apartheid regime in South Africa his political activism and his spiritual awakening. Our conversation traverses the need to redefine what success looks and feels like, the failure of global institutions and systems to adapt, and the opportunities for new ways of co-creating solutions. Today, I'm talking to Jay Naidu. Rather than introduce Jay, I'm gonna ask him to introduce himself, tell us where he is right now, what he would say his current job is and how he starts his days. Over to you, Jay. Thanks very much, Jules. It's a great pleasure to be with you and uh, to have this conversation. Well, what do I do today is <laughs> a big question. <laughs> I live in Johannesburg, uh, just outside of Johannesburg in the Mahalisberg Mountains, which is probably one of the oldest mountains in the world, over 2.2 billion years old. I live off grid, which is useful uh, with our electricity problems in South Africa. I live close to nature. And so my wife, Lucy Paget, who's a writer and a journalist, and I have moved back into nature and, and feel that uh, our life is here, you know. So I'm a grandfather. First and foremost, <laughs> I have three grandsons. Uh, I have three children. I consider them my my greatest achievement in life. <laughs> I'm married to a French Canadian who I uh, met in 1990, and I'm an elder today. So, although I've never actually had a job, I never considered myself. As a career person, I pursue things that I feel very deeply about. And of course, much of my life has been born under an apartheid regime, which you're all very familiar with. And uh, the world was familiar with it because the world helped us defeat one of the last institutionalized racial systems in the world. And so I was a student activist when I was younger in school and university. And that came out of my actual experience of apartheid. You know, when I was four years old, we were evicted from our home. And I never understood why we had to move from this most beautiful place with mango trees and, you know, purple trees and any imaginable fruit you could find in Durban, which is the city, uh, port city 
where I was born. And so eventually, you know, it became apparent that we were the wrong color on the wrong side of the street. And, and as apartheid entrenched itself, it really pushed anyone who was not white into the margins, you know, as a lesser species, basically, of human beings. And so that was my, what I grew up with. And of course, it generated a lot of anger in me. And at some point, you know, when you go through racism that is so institutionalized and so defining of your life, then uh, you start to believe there's something wrong with you. You start to believe that, why am I born black? And you start to question your parents and the anger starts to rise in with you, within you. And so I was fortunate to meet with Steve Beagle, who was a very charismatic student leader who brought to us the philosophy of Black consciousness, be proud to be Black. It was at a time in the late 60s where, in fact, the world was in ferment. Young people were, were building peace movements. You know, the Sorbonne University students that rejected the system they were living in. It reminds me very much of today, how young people do not trust governments, do not trust business, don't even trust civil society. So trust had broken down. And in that, a new energy had been released in the world. And we were caught into that. I could remember being in a meeting with him when I was 15 years old, and I can remember it as if it was yesterday. Now, Steve Biko, to your listeners, was as great in our minds, what we call ourselves the 1976 generation, as Mandela is. That's how important he was. And his core philosophy, which I capture in one of the slogans he had, you know, we have nothing to lose but our chains, because the mind of the oppressed is the main weapon in the hands of the oppressor. So that was my baptism. And I ended up going to university, becoming an organizer for the organization he had set up, the South African Students Organization. And then in 1977, he was murdered by the police. And, and so many of us had to go into hiding and, you know, I, you know, I had to go underground, basically, and many had to leave the country. I chose not to leave the country. And then I became a volunteer in a fledgling union movement for black workers, which was still illegal. And as we negotiated to get some limited recognition, I joined the union full time and rose to become the general secretary of the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which was probably the largest trade union movement in South Africa's history and became a backbone of the struggle against apartheid. And that's where I connected to, in fact, many trade union leaders across Australia and New Zealand and the world built real solidarity, you know, not the type of solidarity decided by log frames like big philanthropy does, but solidarity determined by people to people understanding that our struggle is the same to get to the humanity we want to be. And so out of that, we, of course, allied to an organization like the African National Congress led by Nelson Mandela because it was tried, it was tested, its principles were the same, its sympathy and connection to the working class was, uh, was very strong. And so I, in the discussions of Mandela, he wanted me to come into cabinet. And so I led 20 trade unionists out of the COSATU into parliament on an ANC ticket. And eventually Mandela 
asked me to be the minister of uh, reconstruction and development in the office of the president as a minister without portfolio, a very long, elongated title, because I told him I don't want to be minister of labor because that would create a conflict of interest. <laughs> so, so anyway, so he created this position. And so I sat in his cabinet, but I actually never was a politician. I'm a political animal, I'm a political activist, but actually I don't like formality of political parties and, and particularly governments, you know. And so that's where I left when he left in 1999. I chaired a global foundation on, on malnutrition across the world. I sit on a board of the Moe Bryan Foundation looking at leadership and good governance in Africa. And... I'm very involved with intergenerational conversations across Africa and the world, looking at how we tackle crises that face us, you know, whether it's climate crisis, whether it's exclusion of women, whether it's the discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or, or race or culture or any of it. And how do we assert the right that to our human dignity and to the power that we have over our own bodies, particularly in in the context of what we face in terms of health and the pandemics today. So that's a, a bit of a tour of what I've done in life, not as a career, not as a job, but as a passion. It sounds a little bit to me like you're an influencer and you've always been an influencer. And I know that term is overused these days in terms of, <laughs> you know, a YouTube star or TikTok or one of those social media platforms. But it sounds to me like you have brought people together, encouraged debate and tried to make a difference which to me is a definition of, you know, a true influencer. It's not, it's not about you and what you're peddling. It's more about trying to bring people together and get some, some conversation going and some collaborative action. Would that be about right? Yeah, I don't like labels, but uh, <laughs> I guess that's in a sense. It's trying to get people to see who they are. You know, I think a great challenge of young people today and particularly those that have suffered under whether it's slavery, colonization, these are the original sins that we still live with, attempted to erase our identity. You know, my great-grandmother came to South Africa to work on the sugar farms as an indentured laborer in the 1860s. I'm the fourth generation from the south of India. But we became slaves. And if you look at Africa and you look at your own history in, in New Zealand, there's always been an attempt by colonization to erase people's identity and to create a conformity and a uniformity of thinking. And so we live with a dominant culture, which happens to be the dominant Western culture, and that's a reality. And so if we get to a point where we say there are many wisdoms in the world, indigenous wisdoms that have the same equity, that have the same you know, equivalence, as any other knowledge. So if you take the pandemic and you look at it, you know, I was yesterday in a amazing farm that works with herbs, natural plants. And, and the person running it, it's been in their family for generations. If you go back in all our histories, whether it's in Europe or in, in the Maoris or the Aboriginals or India, whatever, you find that there never was a 
you know, situation where our ancestors, our, even our grandparents, even our parents, you know, would go to a doctor every time they had a cold. You know, there would be food was a medicine for them. The forest, you know, was a pharmacy in which you would get the herbs that will heal you, you know. So it was your supermarket where you got your, you got your food. It was your temple where you went to reach harmony with yourself. So these basic principles of how we live should be things that we should be revisiting. And that's why I, you know, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that at least there's a conversation in New Zealand between Maori culture and the colonizer culture. And there's an attempt to have a reparation, you know, a reconciliation that accepts that there needs to be an apology for what happened, you know, and there needs to be an acknowledgement that this culture is real. I see it, I feel it, I respect it. And then a reparation to the damage that was done. Now that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, even in my own country, the way in which we continue to exclude indigenous people. You know, whether it's their cultural beliefs, whether it's the spiritual beliefs, whether it's their knowledge and wisdom of health and well-being. And so I think that, yes, there is a need for us to have these conversations where I learn to listen, not with my head, but my heart. And that's what uh, Mandela always said, you know, the most difficult journey in life is also the shortest journey from the cesspool of the mind, of its cravings, its desires, its ego, its attachments, you know, and to navigate that to the seat of the soul, which is compassion, solidarity, forgiveness. And so I think that we are caught in a situation today where we have defined success as materialism. So I spend a lot of time with indigenous people and young people. When they look at a forest, they don't see timber to be cut down to make money. They look at the spirit of the forest, the spirit of the mountain, the spirit of the river you know, or the ocean. So I think we are facing a tremendous crisis today, not a crisis in legitimacy of what we have defined as democracy. You know, the way in which democracy has been captured by vested interests in this country, in this world, the growing inequality and poverty of the majority of people in this world, and the concentration of power and wealth in the hands of a 1% the Davos club that is meeting today, you know, who think that they have some sort of legitimacy and authority to decide what should happen to all of us in the world, 8 billion human beings, and now want to assert a control, not just over how our countries are run, because most of our countries and, and leading politicians are living and, you know, working for that club. And so, yes, young people feel abandoned by it. You know, Africa feels abandoned by this world. And so, yes, we recognize that we have to find our own way. And I think that's what we have to do. I think we're entering a period of great tyranny, in fact, you know, that we're starting to see. The reason why I agreed to do your podcast is because I think the mainstream media has lost its, its role as being the guardian of the truth. And now it just become the parachicks of uh, 
a corporatized, uh, you know, media that is now owned by corporate interests. So I think that people are yearning for truth. They're yearning for the conversations about what does our humanity mean? You know, where do where are we coming from? Where are we going? What does it mean to be human? And I think in that context, young people I find that I'm meeting increasingly in South Africa and across Africa are yearning for their spiritual roots, which means going beyond the last 500 years of colonization to say we were human. We had gods. You know, we had a sacred relationship with the soil, with the forest, with the river. And those values and principles, first principles of our humanity are important. And Africa is the cradle of all humanity, of all biodiversity. So how do we come back and almost retrace our steps to a new way of how we live with each other and how we live with everything we share Mother Earth with? And so I think that this is the time because we know from all the signs that we're running out of time. And if you look at all these COP27 that we had and the increasing number of COPs, they have achieved nothing. Because if you just measure the graph of carbon emissions or of you know, greenhouse warming, it shows a steady increase. So I think young people have an absolute right to question us, my generation, everything we've done. And we must have the humility to accept to be questioned and to talk about what we missed and how we can work together in an intelligent way. And how do we get out of patriarchy? Because everything in our lives, whether it's family or religion or politics or business is patriarchal. It has crushed the sacred feminine. So what does it mean to be a woman? It has to go beyond just the feminist defined debates. And there, if you go into indigenous wisdom, you know, if you go to, for example, you go to the Iroquois, the Native Americans in the United States. You know, they talk about a principle of seven generations. So they make the decision, the grandmothers. And they make decisions based on what would be the impact in seven generations. Surely that's a philosophy that we should all embrace. Rather than saying we are here for six months or we are here for five years and then we need to make short-term decisions and make us look good. It's short-sighted. I think we need a completely new conversation. And that's I what I want agree. to hear all of. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's interesting, a couple of reflections, having children myself and thinking and talking to them about what life will be like when they are an adult because they're still quite young, it does force you to think about, well, what will life be like for them when they have children or their children's children are in the world? And that is an uncomfortable realization, I think, for, for people when they suddenly think ahead. And it, I think it turns the, the dial on the time, the clock ticking, because yeah. you know people tend to get busy in their everyday lives and you think, well, I'll sort that out next time or next year or in a little while we'll resolve that or an answer will come to us. But time moves on, you know, people age, things get destroyed, you know, decisions are made and they're very, very difficult then to undo. The time it takes to undo decisions is extremely long. And I think knowing the conversations that I've had with my children certainly has forced me to think a bit more deeply about the urgency 
of change now rather than change for somebody else to think about later? Exactly, exactly. I think that, you know, let me give you an anecdote here in the area where I live because it's also a farming area and they, you know. And so I learned two weeks ago or three weeks ago that people are seeing, we live with baboons and monkeys. We are living in their territory. And so because there have been visitors that come here rather than just the residents, you know, people have been feeding these, uh, you know, visitors have been feeding them. And so, yes, they've become a bit of a nuisance. But the solution was we need to cull and kill the lead male baboons. So this is a symptom of how sick humanity is. We have this strange belief that we have some sort of dominion over everything. And therefore, everything exists to serve us. And this is what has placed us almost in an, close to an extinction event. You know, so my grandson has been coming here since he was uh, a year old, nine months, in fact. And so he's grown up. He's three years now. So he calls this house where he comes to his grandparents, Monkey House. You know, he calls it Maison de, de Sage. So... And he loves seeing monkeys and baboons, you know, and he's got to understand them. You know, our philosophy is not to kill anything. So even though we, you know, we have rats and mice in the house, we've designed things that, you know, that capture them and then we're going to release them. And I've taught him to release, you know, mice and rats at 18 months old. He was doing it. So he's grown up with that and understands that that rat or that butterfly or that beetle or that baboon has the same rights as you. And he respects that. And then I have to tell him, no, there's people here wanting to kill the baboons. And then you start to look at it and say, how superficial can this humanity be? We all, Everyone here is educated. But if you just look at the spiritual beliefs of monkeys and baboons in Africa or in the I have Indian lineage, we have a god, Hanuman, you know, who led an army of, my, of monkeys against Ravana, who is, represents the forces of evil, you know. You have across what we call the golden meridian that runs from the Sphinx of, of Egypt right down through the Rift Valley through to Timbavati, where there are white lions. This is in African cosmology. This is called the birth channel of all the biodiversity in the world. This is where we came as humans from. This is where all biodiversity comes from. And all along there is the recognition. Even in Egypt, there are temples built to baboons. And so, you know, this is the problem we face today where we try to erase other people's belief. They may challenge the way we want to be. And unfortunately, we're all becoming uniform in that. Mm -hmm. And we're destroying the magnificence of the biodiversity so that Today, you know, in Africa, at least we have wild animals. In most parts of the world, they've killed them all. And so how do we protect and how do we learn to live in harmony? How do we build the harmony and intelligent collaboration between the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine? Now, there's no log frame and graph to measure that in business or GDP terms or profitability terms. But maybe that's where we veered too far off the path of understanding our humanity. And I think young people are saying, we've had enough of that. My own children, you know, who 
didn't want to go to university. He wanted to study farming, and he went and spent three years working on different farms to build a farm that switches from industrialized, chemical-driven agriculture that causes the two-thirds of our disease burden in the world to a regenerative, organic way of producing food. And my daughter, again, refused to go into the corporate sector. She says, no, I'm going to build an NGO. And she set up an NGO called Seven Generations, you know. And so young people are saying, listen, we don't want to follow you. We want to build our own way because you have left us with a huge dilemma of whether we're going to have children or not, you know, or whether we can have children that will have even the most basic needs of them of themselves met. So we are at the, at the point, Jules, where we have to make some tough decisions. And it's not based on money and power, it's based on understanding our humanity, our custodianship, our relationship with every other species over which we have no dominion and no, you know, no rights, in fact. That Mother Earth itself is the one that has given us these blessings and the ultimate rights sit with her. So if we are going to recalibrate our relationship in order to survive, then we have to change how we exercise the blessings that we have been given. And so it means moving away from uh, the arrogance, the patriarchal arrogance that has defined so much of us in the last few hundred years, you know. So how do you maintain your sense of hope and optimism? I, you talked earlier about being angry of what you experienced as a child and that anger and illumination from talking to people like Steve Biko about the possibilities driving you forward. What do you draw on now, particularly when you're talking to uh, the young people or you're you know, part of this global kind of conversation what do you draw on to keep your optimism or keep your hope? Curiosity. <laughs> you know, I start from a point where I recognize that my ignorance is far greater than my knowledge, no matter what I've done in life. So that's one. I get inspired. You know, I'm inspired by my grandchildren. You know, they teach me things every day about how to live in the moment. I'm inspired by young people who come with challenging ideas because they're thinking out of box. Every generation will is thinks that generation before them screwed up things. <laughs> it's, it's a knob. I thought, you know, when I went, when I saw what was happening in my country, and I said, you know, I want to get involved in politics, and my parents said, no, you know, the consequence of politics in this country, you'll end up like Mandela. You'll end up in jail, or even worse, you'll get killed or tortured or whatever, and. And we defied that and we broke the rules. You know, so the second thing is to a recognition that I am more than this body. I'm more than this mind. I'm more than my intellect. So what is it? Who am I? So when I ask someone, you know, who are you? So they'll give me their name, but that's something they had no involvement in because their parents gave it to them. <laughs> so, so you're a man. Again, you were not involved in it. It's the X and Y chromosomes that happened to get together. <laughs> so everything in our lives are defined by what we've done, not who we are. And so at a certain point in a deep rural area, I went through a process of transformation, which threw me down a deep rabbit hole, which took me on a journey where I was questioning everything I am and trying to discover who I am. 
through my inner journey. And I ended up in a, what would have been clinically de described as a depression. But I didn't want to take any tablets. And I wanted to deal with it. And so I ended up at the beginning of COVID in March 2020, I was going to India because one of the messages that came to me is go back to where your ancestors come and maybe you will find answers. So I went to an ashram and uh, I was going for a few weeks you know, uh, to do yoga and to you know, learn some tools of meditation and mindfulness. One of the first books I picked up that was written by the visionary yogi and the mystic that set up Isha Yoga Center and Ashram called Satguru was on death. And I was feeling so close to death. And as I read this book, it, it spelled out like for me exactly how I felt. And we spend so little time talking about mortality. Yet it's an absolute certainty for everything that exists in the entire cosmos. There's a birth, there's a life, and there's a death. So if I, as I discovered more and more of my lineage, I see the whole pantheon of what is actually a monotheistic religion, which is a way of life, Hinduism, which my ancestors were, was defining this different phases of life of being born, of living, and going through different rites of passage to a point where you actually renounce and then you let go. And then Mother Earth will take every single atom <laughs> that this body is. Because what are we? We're just a bunch of Earth that has produced food that we've eaten that is walking around. And when we go, Mother Earth will claim every single atom. She's the greatest recycler. So is there something more than that? So anyway, when they, one of the benefits and why I see it as a blessing, coronavirus arrives and one of its messages is slow down. The times are urgent. Fall into the cracks. Understand who you are. So the fact that everything closed down and I happened to be in an ashram, I stayed there for five months. And it was the most remarkable experience I had because while I could understand who I am intellectually, what I was able to using the tools is experience it, to feel it, to be it. And so if you ask me, well, how do I manage? Well, before I have my interview, I've been up, I've done my practices, I've done my yoga, I've articulated my prayers for the day, my prayers not just for me and my family, but for my community, for the country, for the Africa, for the world. And that's how we got to think, that everything is connected and that ultimately I have come down here to have this human experience because I have to learn something. Mm. Or something bigger than me wants to learn something. And I just contribute through my human experience how that consciousness is growing or expanding. And so if we as the Homo sapiens have been blessed with the ability to have free will, mm. not predetermined like so many other species, you know, that's why a, a tree doesn't have to go to school or a tiger doesn't have to go and <laughs> have a nutritionist advising them, you know. So, so. It's like they know what to do. Human beings, we have explored against a spectrum of duality. You know, we can be, you know, Mandela 
when you talk about him, it will represent compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation. You take, you know, take a Hitler or a Mussolini or whoever, a tyrant, and they represent something else. Mm -hmm. So there's a duality. And so the life journey and how you exercise choice should lead you to spiral consciously upward to the supramental beyond the body, mind, and intellect. But what we see is a downward spiral amongst humanity in the way we behave. You know, like these people here that suddenly talk that, oh, no, we just need to kill the male lead baboons and the baboon problem will disappear. Not understanding it's a human problem that has created this problem. And therefore, the answer has to be addressing human behavior, not baboon behavior. They haven't changed their behavior you know, because they wanted to, because we have changed it in a way that has put them into a difficult position now, vis-a-vis -vis the human baboon interface. So if we can start to rethink that, you know, not to be so arrogant about who we are and what we see as success, you know, as I work with indigenous people, you know, I go into huts, they have nothing, no water, no electricity, nothing. What they have is wisdom. So if I looked at my life as a trade union organizer, I lived under apartheid. Most of the workers were migrant workers. They were born away from their families, treated in brutalized, almost concentration camps where they had to work in the mines and the factories or the townships. But actually, many of them may not have been able to read or write, but I learned things from them. And this is a thing. If we can start to understand that not all knowledge comes from a textbook or from a university or a school. There's a whole range of other knowledge that exists in society. And if we took the time to understand the culture and understand the spiritual belief system and their notions of how they solve disputes and how they resolve issues, what is the role? Like we have a sacred tree in Africa called the baobab tree. It's an ancestral tree where we sit around and we sort our problems over thousands of years. And now they want to start a project where many of these trees are, where they want to cut them down to build a coal mine and some fancy other investment, uh, you know, that they want to make, you know. So can we get to the point, Jews, where we just need to know what is enough? We've taken enough. You know, and, and actually the West has, you know, one of the dramas about the pandemic is because the climate crisis is real and they're scared that the rest of the world is wanting to want to live like the United States, you know. And the United States, of each one of us want to live like that, we'll need four planets. So what do they have to do? Because they have created the problem. The industrialized world created the problem. Now, Africa is the one that will suffer the most. So all these cops are completely useless. And so is the Davos of this world, because they don't address that point. You have caused a problem that is threatening the lives of people that have nothing to do with it. How do we deal with this crisis as humanity? You know, How do we recalibrate what we think is our goals as a humanity? And it's not money, it's not power. Can we start putting new indicators rather than GDP? Can we look at happiness? Can we look at 
you know, communing with nature? Can we look at ex educating people in, in, the, in the ancient ways? Can we look at the recognition of the diversity and the, the wisdom of so many traditions that should be brought to the fore? And can we approach the challenges we face as humanity, whether it's climate crisis, whether it's new pandemics, in a different way? Because many of these pandemics is a consequence of our behavior, our misbehavior on this planet. You know, when the glaciers melt, don't think they just contain water, they contain whatever's been there for billions of years. You know, when we tear up the land, you know, it contains both the positive and the negative, you know, micro biome. So I, I'm just saying that this is the conversations we need today, but we don't find places we can have them. And so part of it is how do you create the, com, com, you know, the community, whether it's electronically and harnessing the internet so it's not used by just those that are rich and powerful, but used by ordinary people to share. I, I know I, one of the doctors that lives in my community was living in New Zealand. And he's South African, but he's come back. And he tells me about the river in, 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 in New Zealand that is recognized as a person or the tree. Now, that's the right direction where nature has rights. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second part of my conversation with Jay Naidu. We talk about how to foster greater creativity, innovation and connection across the world through truly democratic mechanisms and finding ways to connect and support young people. And of course, the importance of finding joy and having fun along the way. I hope you enjoy this as much as Jay and I did. To my mind, there's a there's a really clear link between who are the people who are the governors, you know, on the boards of the big companies or the elected officials, um, the politicians and the decisions that get made and the way those decisions get made. And so I'm really interested in this because it's a hot topic of debate in New Zealand around the concept of co-governance which is the idea of the, the relationship between the crown, which is a colonial um, institution um, that is now, you know, sort of set into the foundations, if you like, of the country, but wasn't originally. And the Maori and the, and the, and the iwi, and, which is the traditional institutional set of institutions around. And how does that balance work where you have equal or, you know, a, a respected collaboration between indigenous voices, indigenous theories and westernized kind of crown oriented theorists and it comes together in the people who sit around the table making the decisions so i'm really interested in how you see that changing fundamentally um, if if it has to change in order to get more of those voices to the table then what role does governance as a function play in bringing more of that to the surface that is a really important question because uh, we've always talked about co-determination or the right to self-determination. And uh, how you construct that path as you're walking it, because there's no model out there 
could be a very exciting way of looking at things. Challenging, but exciting. I think today, no one in the world has a solution for what we should do. We all know what's happening is wrong. And it's, it's the shortcut to falling over the precipice. And without a parachute. <laughs> so how do we co-create something? But co-creation only works if there's, first of all, trust, where there's acceptance, where there's empathetic listening, where there's no sort of, you know, you know, a lot of the conversations that establishment has around this type of question will be saying we have to live in the real world. That's their response, standard response. But who determines that real world? Who says that we should target inflation and we should target GDP growth? You know, why can't we be like Bhutan and target happiness? Surely that's the goal of life, the pursuit of joy, of the human experience. But we all like slaves, you know, from the time we're born, you know, it's getting into pre-kindergarten and then getting into primary school and secondary school. And it's always a ladder. We're climbing, climbing, climbing. And we, some people end up their whole lives climbing and not living because someone has set a goal for them. So how do we get to a point where work is human dignity? Not because I have to go because I'll starve if I don't have a wage. What type of society will embrace that? You know, so I think that ideology, we're living in a world that is post-ideology. So all these ideologies of socialism, communism, social democracy, democracy itself, capitalism, you know, for many people, it's lost its allure because it's impossible to achieve. So a big American dream. Well, you know how many millions of Americans don't even have medical aid access to medical care, let alone anything else. So this idea that we've been sold, that this, you know, the trickle-down economics and that somehow if you work hard, you know, you know, if you're poor, for example, the ideology, if you're poor, it's your fault. So I think we need to change the basic tenets of what we see as success around a co-creation of how we live closer to the earth, how we understand that there are boundaries that we cannot exceed in our planet. How, what is the lifestyle that we will be able to create that is sustainable, that is, we live in an ecosystem that is circular. You can't have an economy that's linear. It's just the most basic understanding of mathematics says those two things don't come together. It's like oil and water, you know? So what is a set of values that would, would inspire us? And I don't think we're going to get that in Davos or we're going to get that in New York or London or wherever else. You know? I think you're going to get it by actually going back and seeing retracing the step that we've made. And that's why actually listening to the Maoris and even here, you know, the way in which we settled the black-white divide and apartheid ended up with a few black people who are politically connected, benefiting from the whole sacrifice made by countless generations who have fought for the freedom. So yes, 
when I look at it and I understand the legitimate grievance that young people have to extent Jews, where in the last election, 36 million people had a right to vote in our country. 26 million around that registered to vote. Only 18 million people voted. And if you look at the people that didn't register and didn't vote, it's young and it's black. So in my lifetime, thing that I would have died for and many did die for, half the young youth, black youth, don't believe it. Mm. So who am I to go and tell them, no, you must believe how important this vote is when it hasn't made a much difference in their lives? And so you start to ask that question, not just of a democracy like South Africa, but ask about it in the United States or ask about it anywhere in the world. Mm. So we're coming to a point where things are broken. The health system is broken. The economic system is broken. Today, even if you're a graduate, you can still walk the street looking for a job. Mm. The technological revolution has had such a deep impact that more and more, Machines, artificial intelligence or 5D printing or whatever, you know, nanotechnology is going to replace and do much of the manual work. And that's a good thing. But what would we do at the time? Surely we have to think about this. What would be the education we need? What would be the health systems we need? What would be the way in which we build the creative sector? How would we communicate? I don't listen to television news anymore. It's just that much sense. And you know, 30 second microwave, you know, journalism that tells me about some crisis in the world and, and makes it so simplistic that no one can really understand. There's no detailed conversation like we are having mm. that elaborates and details and doesn't answer, but actually, this sets a, a context, a texture of how we're struggling to understand our humanity, and that's what's important. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's behind my setting up the podcast, actually, is because I don't have all the answers and I don't think one person out there has the answers. What I'm interested in is how people think, what they've experienced, how they're processing things and what they're doing about those things, because out of that, I and other people will get a spark of inspiration that they can take forth and make make their own mark, be creative in their own way. Uh, I watched a, um, a little snippet on YouTube uh, a few days ago about um, education system and how when you, you first take your children to go to school, uh, they believe anything is possible and, uh, and they're wildly creative. And as they go through the sort of education system, they get to the point where they almost have lost all of that or they've put it in a box and they've put a lid on it because it's not conformist. They don't want to fail. They don't want to be seen to fail. And then we shove them out into the world and we say to you, we say to them, they have to be creative and they've got to solve all of these problems. But we've put them through an education system where actually they're designed not to be creative and to put all, to stunt all of that part of their personality. So I think one of the things that really interests me is that around the world, people have all of these ideas 
What we don't have necessarily is the ability to share those ideas in ways that connect with other people's ideas and to grow creative solutions in a way that's not an institutionalized framework. And that to me is that sense of a global community where we can solve a lot of these issues, but you can't solve them listening and talking to the same people who've created the problems. Because if you start and go forward with the same kind of people and the same kind of thinking, you'll get the same answers and they haven't solved them yet. So why would they solve them in the future? Exactly. So that's why the mainstream media and even now social media doesn't answer this question because it's about power. You know, addressing what you are saying is decentralized, localizing, and rather than institutionalizing, you are allowing the emergence of something that is spontaneous, that is organic, that is natural. And we live in a, a human mentality defined by what is my advantage I get from what I do. So my advantage of going to university is that in the past, it used to guarantee you a nice suburban house and two cars in the garage and, you know, ability to go on holiday internationally once a year. But it doesn't do that anymore. Okay. So the system has reached a point where it cannot deliver in terms of its original mandate to have enough people that benefit from it. So what's happening in the United States, what's happening in Europe is the middle classes are being crushed. And as you remove the social security net, more of them are falling deeper into a class of people they never considered themselves part of, that they have to work in order to live. And so we are facing that crisis where everything is falling apart. And of course, the first thing that governments will do is cut social security, you know, when the country is in crisis. And now the world is in crisis. We see inflation rising. We see possibility of a recession. We see a slowdown in key parts of China slowdown. gets a cold, then we're all going to get the cold. You know, so we are in a world that's really unpredictable and volatile. But with a generation that lives today that is born for this moment, because unlike any other generation before us, what we do, and how we co-create an intelligent and authentic intergenerational conversation will determine whether we continue to survive as a species. Now, a lot of people talk about that Mother Earth is in danger. Yeah, but Mother Earth has been here four and a half billion years. She's gone through five natural extinctions already, the last 60 million years ago with the dinosaurs. So, you know, for me, I don't have a concern about her health, you know, unless we do something so dramatic. So I can't imagine what that could be. But say it takes a 50 million years to recover from our stupidity. That's a rounding area. You know, it's a rounding error if you're, <laughs> if you're four and a half billion years old, you know. It's like that. So, okay, let's just swat these fleas off my back and let everything settle down and then let's restart the experiment because we're a laboratory. So if you look at life and you say, ah, oh, man, you know, there's one consistent thread that ties everything together. And, you know, from this human experience, my next human experience. So if you go into ancient indigenous lineages, they always say, you know, like the Buddhists, he's like, 
always be prepared for mortality because you never know. It could be the day after you're born. So the idea is to find the joy of the human experience no matter what the circumstances you're surrounded. It could be stormy like it is today. Find the eye of the storm. Always try to find the eye of the storm. And once you're in that eye of the storm, just see the tread. That, okay, if I can find the joy of this moment, even if I'm in the middle of a war, I could find something that I could do that makes me feel, you know, it could be saving someone's life, a child's life, or whatever it is. And I extend, I know that thread, that thread will continue and building more awareness and not accumulating what they call karma, you know? Mm -hmm. So the next time I come down into a human experience, whatever it is, I know I don't have to repeat the lessons. What humanity hasn't learned, it's constantly repeating its trauma. So you go through trauma of war and then you think, oh, maybe we've learned a lesson from the Second World War. 60 million people died, such massive destruction. We should never have war again. We create a United Nations as a multilateral system. And yes, it keeps things quiet, but then there's a Cold War that starts immediately. And then now and then it flares into a hot war. And now we're having a situation where we can, we're even talking of a nuclear war. So the question is, why don't we learn the lesson? And that means, what is your approach to life? And one of the simple lessons I learned in the ashram was that, see, you're sitting on the banks of a river. And, and you look at that river flowing. And you keep thinking that the river remains the same river, but it's changing every nanosecond. So if you look at the cooperation between the river, the bank, and the river body of water, it's a relationship of great harmony. And when harmony breaks down and it overflows, then it always comes back. There's always a restoration. You know, there's crises. You never know. It could be a drought. It could be a flood. Whatever it is. You know, and that's what they talk about, the masculine and the feminine, the feminine being the water, the masculine being the bank. So if you think about life like that, it's a flow of experiences. Some of them are joyful. The birth of your son or the birth of my grandson. You know, it's great joy, you know. Some of them are pretty painful, mm. hurtful. And some of them are traumatic, like you're born in Syria and for no reason you're getting bombed, you know. And you can't understand that. All of them are experiences. And the thing, the trick, is always to say, how do I take that pain of that experience and understand its lesson, or even the joy of it, but keep the distance with the actual experience? Because that's the quicksand of emotional and psychological trauma that will get you deeper and deeper into despair. Now, this is something we have to have a discussion with young people, because mm. the way in which the pandemic was handled had generated a new pandemic of mental illnesses, of depressions, and increasingly of suicides. In this past few months, I've seen two people I know, young people in their 20s, commit suicide, highly successful. So we are missing something. And we got to find the ways in which some of them ancient ways and how we understood the rites of passage of young people and how we could be the sort of 
rail guards of allowing them to tackle the challenges we are leaving them. And these are things that I think are more useful to talk about rather than saying go on antidepressants or giving children Ritalin in school. Can you imagine you're giving drugs to kids in primary schools? That's what's happening all over the world. What are we doing to our own humanity? And then you have these, you know, these adventurers from, you know, I call them Davos, where they want to talk about transhumanism, planting chips in us. And they think that's progress, you know, but a machine will never have a soul. No machine. It can have a lot of intelligence, but it won't have soul. It won't have empathy. It won't understand emotions. So what are we trying to create? This is the most sophisticated technology that exists. Everything else we see, even me across to you and through this technology is created because it happened first as an idea in our heads. Mm. And then it became manifested. So why do we spend so little time understanding this technology? Mm. You know, the technology that sits in here. Because it has access to all knowledge, all wisdoms, across all times. And so I think if we could start to have these conversations, Jules, it gives hope, your question. It gives mm. hope to younger people. And it allows them to explore something that is not following in my footsteps or my shoes you know i don't want anyone to walk in my shoes i want them to walk in their own shoes mm. and that's my approach to life so i want to ask also about people as a mentor and but i also want to think about just that question about young people feeling despair because i think that's something that's common across most countries actually and the pandemic has magnified it. I know that a lot of people, a lot of young people felt that they lost contact with their peers, they lost their position, they lost their sense of security during the pandemic mm. and things have been really, really tough since then. And I wanted to ask about um, having heroes or heroines because earlier on when we were talking, you talked about, you know, your eyes and your heart being opened when you first met and heard Steve Biko. And then you've talked about Nelson Mandela, who stood and stands for something greater than the individual that he was. And for a lot of people globally, people like Steve Biko and Nelson Mandela, they're heroes, partly because they were themselves, uh, you know, dynamic individuals who had, you know, innovative new ideas, but because they stood for something. Whereas now I wonder whether or not there's a lack of heroes for people to to sort of aspire to not to be like, but to walk alongside. And I wonder whether you share that or whether or not you see there is a growing a growing population of new heroes that are out there that people can get some hope from, can get some inspiration from. That's a, a really good question because, uh, you know, to which it's difficult to answer because, you know, when the uh, uprisings took place in North Africa, in the, in the North African countries, where young people rose against dictators like Ben Ali and Mubarak and so forth, and the struggle there was a very basic struggle. It was about freedom, it was about justice, and it was about bread, which is jobs. You know, it was a struggle for the revolution of human dignity. But the way in which Western media 
characterize it is Arab Spring and there must be a leader. Well, a lot of young people don't believe in the concept of the institutionalization of leadership. They don't believe in this thing of, you know, they believe more in the notion of leaderless revolutions. And I have a great sympathy. Look at my country, South Africa. Look at what this African National Congress that I would have given my life and many people gave and Mandela gave much of his life in jail for. It's a shadow of itself. It today represents the shadow of what we were and what we stood for. So it's been compromised. It's been captured. But so has everything. You know, I mean, look at your own country. When I first heard your prime minister, I thought she was an extraordinary person, you know, and I listened to her now and I just, uh, wow. What transforms people? You know, why does access to power suddenly generate this notion of arrogance, of power, of belittling people, ridiculing people, demonizing people, dividing people, like in the pandemic, the divisions that have been created between people who chose to be vaccinated and those who chose not to be vaccinated. And, and what we know today is that the vaccine did not stop immunity, did not give you immunity, did not stop transmission. We, we're seeing increasingly the side effects of it, and they're still pursuing it without conversation in a divided medical community. That can't be. You know, and that's why my wife, who has been a journalist, a professional journalist of 45 years, said the media is dead because the media is the fourth estate. It's supposed to be the watchdog. It's supposed to be there presenting all sides of the view. I have seen vaccine injuries in my own family, friends, community, but no one wants to talk about it you know, because it seemed to be, oh, you're suddenly anti-vaxxer. If you look at the methodology deployed, it's the same that apartheid used against us. Ridicule, demonize, ultimately create the conditions to eliminate those that disagree with you. This is George Orwell on steroids here, and we have to talk about it. I'm willing to, I want to hear all sides of the opinion. That's what the media is supposed to bring to me. I don't, but there's no newspaper I can pick up today that I feel gives me the facts of what I want to hear on all sides. So I think we're at a point where we're actually facing one of the greatest challenges in our human journey. And, you know, I recognize tyranny because I grew up with it. And I see the signs, the telltale signs all around us. And I fear for the next generation. You know, it's, it has characteristics that represent the worst of fascism, but clothed in, in a language that seems to offer us hope and offer us a place, but actually it doesn't. You know, it's the wolf in sheep's clothing. And so I think that the responsibility of people like me is to speak my truth. I don't claim it is the only truth, but my truth, based on my experience and my position today that I don't need anything from anyone. I don't want anything. I don't want any position. I'm stepping off everything. I'm happy to sit where I am and spend time with young people. And, and like my son said, you know, he wanted to study agriculture, regenerative agriculture, but there's no place he can go and work where he doesn't want to go and sit in university because the internet allows him to get all the information about the best farms. So he's been working three years on, in different farms. And now he wants to set up a regenerative farm here in South Africa and embrace youth 
people, because we have huge unemployment in this country, probably 60% of young black kids under 25 are unemployed. And so he wants to create something that is going to be an operating farm, employ regenerative methods of respecting the land, because soil health is linked to food health, is linked to human health and well-being. It's a cycle. And he wants to train young people where they can come for a year and work and understand. And how do we shift from a chemical-driven industrialized system that has destroyed 40% of, of the topsoil of the world? And when we destroyed the topsoil, we got no life left because we can't grow food. So these are enormous challenges facing us, Jules. And that's what should be the focus of our conversation. But I don't have the answers to it. I can tell you more or less what not to do because these were mistakes we made. But we need new ideas. We need new data. We need new passion. We need new adrenaline. <laughs> so how can we create this, you know, through conversations like this and then create the sort of connection? And that's what's happening. Connect the dots so that wherever a person is sitting in a remote village, if they can have access to the internet and get to these conversations and what they want to do and they've decided in their lives and they just type in, I want to do this, it must give them a hundred examples in different countries where similar young people have tried things with the similar type of resources. Now that will help us build the human connection between us and also break down the divisions of nations, of races, of cultures, of our languages, and to a point where we see the oneness of our humanity. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Let's go for that. <laughs> and we'll have fun doing it. We'll have great fun doing it. I, when I fought in the, I was a trade union leader and an organizer in the community, I had fun. We had fun here in the worst times. We don't like to sort of become so serious. And that's another thing in life, you know. Don't take yourself too seriously, you know. This is, you know, they say, you know, Shakespeare had it done beautifully, you know. The world's one big stage, you know. And it, you can decide, <laughs> you know, where you want to make a drama or because <laughs> drama makes more karma. So know your entrance and know your exit, you know. And so if you figure that out, then life is beautiful. Actually, every moment, no matter how difficult the challenge is, I look at it and I say, oh, let me use my curveball thesis. Maybe I should explain my curveball thesis. <laughs> so, so in whatever situation you face, understand the number of curveballs coming at you. So now if there's a curveball coming, it's like this cricket ball, you know, and you, you know a cricket, you know, it's like coming at a speed, you know. 150 kilometers. So what are your choices? You can step out of the way and miss it, but you need to be versatile. You need to understand it. You need to understand the many dynamics before it hits you. So how to step out and when to step out and timing. But you can step out. The disadvantage of that is that you, you miss the experience, the lesson, because you stepped out of the way. You know. The other is that you catch the ball. Or if you're in baseball, you hit the ball, send it to another dimension, you know, and you think, okay, I'm putting it on the back burner. I don't need to deal with this now. Okay, I've, my response is my answer, and I've hit it out of my life. It's not going to affect me anymore. 
Or the third option, which is the most interesting, you take it on your chin. <laughs> and then when it's 30 seconds or three years, you're going to sit with that experience because it's painful. It's hurtful. But then you have to ask yourself, why did this ball hit me? Why did I allow it? And then you have to come to terms with who you are. Okay, maybe it is a lesson I had to learn. So it is something that I've gained from. And I feel more confident now that I'm not going to repeat that again. You know, that one is too painful. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's my curveball thesis. <laughs> and you apply it to relationships, to work, to living, to thinking, whatever you're doing. You know, it's the same thing. In fact, that's the way young children work. Look at a playground. They'll be screaming and crying and then fighting. And then next minute they are all up the, you know, playing on the, the jungle gym, you know. So kids are born with that. And so we adults forget that through our socialization or we delete it. So it's never deleted. You just come back and maybe it'll be so much better to have that lesson when you're 25 than when you are 60. <laughs> so... <laughs> anyway. It's never too late. It's never too late. <laughs> hey, um, I wanted to say thank you very much. I think we could talk for many, yeah. many hours on these topics, and maybe we can talk again. But I wanted to say thank you so much for giving your time and your thoughts and reflections. And I know I can feel that you'll have a poem out of this conversation that you'll be able to write <laughs> and send to me. And I'm looking forward to it because I love your poems and your poetry. So I did want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving us your time. A pleasure. Great to see you. And I hope to see you one day physically. You know, New Zealand is one place I've never been. And so my wife and I have talked often that... Uh, you know, we're looking at the last few places in this world that we haven't been. At, like, and uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be good one That's day beautiful. if we if you happen to be here in Africa, come past. I'm hoping to, uh, I'm hoping to be there later this year. So oh wow, I'll come and see the monkey house. Exactly. <laughs> and meet my grandson. <laughs> yeah, and meet the grandson. Thank you so much, Jay. I re really appreciate it. Pleasure. Bye. Soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, as always, to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to thehumansatwork.org website.